We're going to start our, our Christmas series, and we're calling it The Greatness of Christ. And if you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not necessarily a traditional Christmas passage. As a matter of fact, uh, I actually went through this, uh, this week and looked at all the Christmas messages that I've preached here and the Christmas series that I've preached here since 2011 uh, when I came to be your pastor. And, uh, you know, why you still let me be your pastor is, is beyond me, especially after looking at all the old material. But, you know, generally we, we land in the book of Matthew, we land in the book of Luke uh, to talk about the Christmas story, the birth of Christ. And, uh, and those are wonderful passages, and we preach that a lot. And I really just this year, even before looking back at what we had, we had covered in the past, I was like, Lord, what do, you, what do you want us to focus on this year? What do you want us to really focus on during this time of year where we celebrate the birth of Christ? And, uh, and I think one of the things that the Lord would have us to, to focus on is what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so the series is going to be entitled, The Greatness of Christ. And as we get going this morning, I want you to think about greatness for just a second in our culture. You know, we ascribe greatness to a lot of different things. Uh, we, we ascribe greatness to athletic achievement, right? We, 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 we even have a saying in our culture, depending on individual athletes, we call them the GOAT. Now, if you don't know what that means, if you're not a sports person, number one, I'll pray for you. But number two, uh, the GOAT means, if you're the GOAT, it doesn't mean a four-legged animal. It means you are the greatest of all time. Okay, see how that works with the letters? The GOAT, the greatest of all time. And we think of names like Michael Jordan. Where's Corey at? Corey's going to disagree on this. He better not, you know, he can stay out front in the foyer and disagree. It's fine. Michael Jordan is the GOAT of NBA basketball, hands down. LeBron James doesn't hold a candle. I said it. I hear Corey disagreeing. It doesn't matter. I'm right. He is the greatest basketball player of all time. He is the GOAT. We got guys like Tom Brady, right? If you're an NFL fan and, and listen, that guy just apparently doesn't age. I don't like him, but you just can't. You just can't deny that the guy just keeps getting it done. He's really a robot. He's an android. He's, he's, he's you know, a chimera. I don't know what he is, but he's, he's just ageless and timeless. You think about guys like in baseball, Babe Ruth, right? And, and there's been tremendous guys over history, uh, but, but, but the name Babe Ruth keeps coming up. We ascribe greatness to athletic achievement. We ascribe greatness to positive experiences, right? Like if we go to a restaurant, hey, man, that was a great meal, you know, and, and for guys like me, we, 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 we measure greatness by how much, you know, how wonderful this wheel, meal was, but also how much I paid for it, right? Like it could be really good, but if I paid a lot of money for it, well, maybe it wasn't so great. But there's that fine balance of really good food and economics, right? It, it's the dollar per, you know, uh, calorie type thing or whatever. Man, that was a great meal. That was a great movie. You know, I went to the movies and man, that was a fantastic movie. That was a great cup of coffee. And they're all great when you're an addict like me, okay? They're all great, but some are better than others. And man, we're, 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 we ascribe greatness to our experiences. Sometimes we ascribe greatness to things with significant size or stature, like a beard. Man, that's a great big beard. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about Gabe. But, you know, other... Sometimes we ascribe greatness to things that are, that are large in stature. You know, man, that's a great big hunk of a man, you know, type thing. Uh, I know all of you, huh? Are we at a B minus now in the, in the sermon? Sometimes, sometimes we just ascribe greatness uh, 
to when things meet or even exceed our expectations, right? Like, like man, how was your day today? Oh, I had a great day. And what that means is nothing went wrong. Nothing broke. The schedule followed what I had planned in the morning. There were no surprises. Sometimes, sometimes if, if you go to a restaurant and you receive great customer service, it met or exceeded your expectation, right? So we ascribe greatness to a lot of different things in our, in our life and in our, in our culture, and, and that's all good. We, sh- we should do that. But when we come to the Word of God, God also uses that Word. And, and God ascribes greatness to things that are very significant and very important. As a matter of fact, as, as we go through this series the next few weeks, we're going to see that God uses that Word over and over uh, to point to some significant things and, and some significant people. And so if you're in your Bible, let me pray, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Let me pray, and we're going to read that verse together and begin this morning. Father, we love you. Thank you again, uh, literally, for your greatness and, and for your goodness in our life. We, we, we really mean what we sing. We, we really believe those words uh, about you. Uh, we believe that the promises in those songs and the truth in those songs really is real. We believe that. We trust that. And, and Lord, today we, we want to come to your word humbly and, and believe that you want to speak to us today from your word. I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray your Holy Spirit teaches us as only he can teach us. God, I, I can't bring anything to the table, but, but your Holy Spirit can open our eyes and our heart to the word of God. So Lord, do that today. And, and may we be encouraged and strengthened and even corrected if need be, Lord, where, where you see fit so that we can honor you with our life. We love you and we ask it in, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Our text this morning is one verse, but we'll be uh, all over the place in the Bible. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And, and, and what we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is this statement, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit in detail this morning, but before we get to, to that specific mystery, I want you to know from the Word of God that, that your Bible has within it things that are mysteries. As a matter of fact, here's a key principle that you can write down in your notes. A mystery according to the Bible, is something that was hidden but was later revealed in time. So your Bible has mysteries in it. You say, well, I thought we were talking about Christmas and the birth of Christ. And all. Okay, just hang on. we got to, we got to set it up. And, and so a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden and later revealed. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 that God revealed some mysteries to the Apostle Paul. Things that were, were there all along, but weren't revealed to humanity until a certain point in time. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3 says how, Paul writes and he says, How that by revelation he, Christ, made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote in a, in a, a four and a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, listen, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known, Unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so God wants you to know that there are things in his word and and there are things about God that were hidden in, in times past, in other ages, but then they were revealed 
to, to Christ's apostles and his prophets, and they were revealed by the Spirit of God. Okay, Colossians chapter 1 mirrors this, this truth. It says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to who? To his saints. And I just want you to understand that God has some things in his Bible that are very clearly hidden to people in other ages and other generations, but finally were revealed in the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit of God. And, and we're going to go through very quickly what these mysteries are because we want to get to the, the mystery we're talking about today. But we need to understand that there are mysteries in the Bible. And, and then secondly, we need to understand that God wants us to understand these, these mysteries. In other words, we're called to steward these mysteries as the saints of God. We're, we're, we're given stewardship of these mysteries. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, and it's on the screen, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the stewards. And, and, and listen, Paul writes and he says, I want you to understand that we're ministers of Christ. By the way, we're all ministers of Christ. We may have different giftedness and different offices, but we're all ministers of Christ. And he's given us stewardship of the mysteries of God. In other words, these mysteries are something that every believer has been given stewardship of. They're not your mysteries, but you've been given responsibility by Christ for these mysteries. Verse 2 says, moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. So God demands, God requires of us faithfulness, especially in the area of these mysteries. Okay, God wants you to know these mysteries. God wants you to be faithful with these mysteries. Okay, and, and very quickly, and I know you have these in your notes. What are these mysteries that are, that are in the Bible? Well, the first mystery is the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride. And we get that out of Ephesians 5, and we're not going to turn to the verses because we just want to establish that these mysteries are here in the Bible. But in Ephesians 5, verse 32, the Bible says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And many of us go to the book of Ephesians, and we learn about the husband and the wife and what, what marriage is supposed to be. And listen, there's some cool stuff in Ephesians 5, but when you get to the end of the chapter, Paul says, hey, no offense, it ain't really about husbands and wives. What it's about is Christ and his church. And he says, that's a mystery. It's a great mystery. And so if you spend some time in Ephesians 5, you'll learn about the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Uh, by the way, they're one flesh, just like a husband and wife have joined together in one flesh. And there's a whole, whole lot of uh, symbolism and, and, and uh, similarities in between the two, and we, we could talk about that. The second mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory, and we get that out of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the, um, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want you to understand that, listen, when you got saved, the Spirit of God, who is God, indwelled you. He took up residence in you. You're eternally secure in Christ, according to the Word of God. He seals you. He comforts you. He teaches you. He convicts you. God says that's a mystery. It's Christ in you. And, and he says, man, what a, what, a, what a tremendous mystery. It's the hope of glory. Number three, 
The next mystery is the restoration of the nation of Israel. And we get that out of Romans 11 and verse 25. Paul says, and, and, and this could be echoed loudly from a loudspeaker in this culture of Christianity. Romans 11 and verse 25 says, Paul writes and he says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And, and I just want to say very firmly that if you are ignorant of this mystery, you are wise in your own conceit. You don't understand God's plan for the nation of Israel. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. And people that, that ascribe to Reformed theology and Calvinistic doctrine are ignorant of this mystery and wise in their own conceit because Israel as a nation is blinded, but they will be restored, according to Romans chapter 11. That's a mystery. God, God calls it a mystery. And when you don't steward that mystery, you ascribe to replacement theology. You, you ascribe to covenant theology. You ascribe to an incorrect doctrine according to the word of God. So God has called us to steward all of these mysteries, and that is one that has not been steward, stewarded well uh, in our age of Christianity. Nevertheless, we are called to steward that, that doctrine, that mystery. Number four, the rapture of the church is a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so, again, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians, it talks about the mystery of, of the rapture. We are going to be caught up preceding the tribulation period. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture here. How do you steward that? Well, you steward that by working until you see Jesus. You're faithful. God calls it a mystery. And so because we know that we're going to see him face to face and we're going to be caught up with him, we got work to do. we got to be busy. Number five, the mystery of iniquity is, is dealing with the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through nine calls the Antichrist the mystery of iniquity. And, uh, and again, uh, our, our goal this morning is not to go through in, in detail each of these mysteries, but it is to establish that every time that God uses that word, there is a different mystery that we need to understand so that, so that we can be good stewards of God's word. Number six, mystery Babylon the Great, and again, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5, mystery the Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth, and that's talking about a Babylonian world religious system and political system that's driven by the Antichrist himself, and, and you need to understand that. You need to recognize that, and you say, wow, that's a lot of deep Bible study. Well, that's really not a lot of deep Bible study. It's actually the things that are required for us to be faithful. And those things actually help us stay sound in our doctrine, uh, according to the Word of God. And, and then the seventh mystery, and, and this is where we're getting tonight, or this morning. It'll be tonight before I'm done preaching, but <clears throat> this morning, that seventh mystery, especially this time of year, because, man, we, we, we pause, we slow everything down, and, and if ever <laughs> we need to look to Jesus Christ, it's this year. Good grief. Are you kidding? It's 2020. I mean, look. And, and, and so, look. The last mystery that we see in the scriptures is this First Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 
And so the Word of God tells us that godliness is a great mystery, that God himself was manifest in the flesh. And that's really what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we really, that's what we should celebrate Christmas. I'm not sure we all do, but, but, but it's the fact that God himself was manifest in the flesh. And the same God that was manifest in the flesh was justified in the spirit. And the same God that was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit was seen of angels. Do you guys remember Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus Christ had, had uh, been baptized? And you know, or Matthew chapter 3, and heaven opened and God the Father spoke from heaven. Uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And, and it's kind of like the, the, the beginning of his earthly ministry and the confirmation to the nation of Israel that Christ is who he said he was. And, and John the Baptist realized it. Everybody realized it. Matthew chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after that temptation, and after he gained victory over the devil in that temptation, the Bible says in Matthew 4 and verse 11, that the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Who did they minister to? They ministered to God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. When God tells you in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that he was seen, that God in the flesh was seen of angels. He's talking about Jesus Christ was seen of angels. God in the flesh is who was preached to the Gentiles. He, he is the one who must be believed upon. God in the flesh is the one that must be believed upon for salvation. And, and then he was received up into glory. And we know that from Acts chapter 1. So, so as we talk about the greatness of God, we have to talk about the greatness of this mystery and this mystery, the Bible says, is without controversy. Now, the word controversy means uh, dispute or debate or, or, or opposing opinions. And, and yet, the Word of God, what, what you and I think, well, there's a lot of controversy about Christ. Is he or is he not God in the flesh? Is he not who he said he was? You know, is, is Christ even real? And was he really God in the flesh? And is he God in the flesh? You know, we, have, we think that there's a lot of controversy concerning that subject. Let me tell you what God thinks about it. God says without controversy. There's no controversy. There's no room left for controversy. There's no debate. There's no dispute. There's no opposition. This mystery, well, it's just great. It's just great. It's splendid. It's mighty. It's grandiose. It's significant. It's highly esteemed. It is one of the greatest mysteries, if not the greatest mystery in all of the Bible, that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to remember the historical significance because Paul is writing this epistle of 1 Timothy to, to Timothy, uh, the name-bearer. And Paul is Timothy's father in the faith. He's his, his mentor, his discipler. Timothy would become the pastor of a church at Ephesus. And, and, and so as we read the Scriptures, and if you read back to Paul's missionary journey through Ephesus, you're going to find it, and he actually was in Ephesus twice, but the second time he was in Ephesus was in Acts chapter 19. And the Bible tells us that Ephesus uh, was a, an interesting city. Ephesus had a temple to the great goddess Diana, and, and listen, all of the Ephesians and all of Asia worshipped this goddess of Diana, this, this pagan goddess. She, she was called Diana of the Ephesians. She was the goddess of the sun and of the moon. And, and she, you know, she was considered the source of all life. And, and she was also the equivalent of these other women goddesses, Ishtar, Astaroth, Venus, 
uh, Juno, Vesta, Minerva, all, all of these are kind of wrapped up in this same person. When Paul went into Ephesus and began to preach Christ, the Ephesians responded to the gospel message of God in the flesh. They didn't respond with belief and reception. They responded with rejection. So much so, when they heard Paul preaching, the Bible says they were full of wrath and they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And the the verse goes on to say in verse 34 that for two hours straight, all the people of Ephesus cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana. And that's three times and I'm done. Okay. For two hours. And, And years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul would write to his son in the faith, who would be a pastor at Ephesus, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You see, you see greatness in the Bible, what God ascribes greatness to, it, it, it's based on his character. God, God ascribes greatness The greatness of this mystery and what God ascribes greatness to is based on the greatness of our God. It's actually his character, his nature. And so the key point in your notes is this. The greatness of this mystery of God being manifest in the flesh is because the greatness of our God. And listen, God himself is great, so anything connected with him is going to be great. Do you understand that? And and listen, let me just rattle off a few things that I got in my notes. They're not in your notes, but listen, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we neglect so great of a salvation? Do you know why our salvation is great? Not because of you and me. It's great because of God. It's a great salvation because of God. Hebrews 4 says that we have a great high priest, and because of that, we can go boldly to his throne of grace. Do you know why we can do that? Not because of us, but because of his greatness, the great high priest who is Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. Those of of us that have lost, lost loved ones, listen, we haven't lost them at all. If they know Christ, they're with the Lord. And they are part of this great cloud of witnesses because of the goodness and greatness of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13. He he has promised us great reward in heaven, Matthew chapter 5. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, with great power gave the apostles witness of his resurrection. Why is it great power? Because it's his power. It's God's power. The Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 33 that great grace was upon all of those apostles. Why? Because God is a God of great grace. He has a great love for us, according to Ephesians 2. Revelation chapter 20 says he sits on a great white throne. There's a great day of wrath coming, according to Revelation chapter 6. And there's a great city called New Jerusalem, Revelation 21. When God speaks of great things, they're great because of him. (laughs) They're, They're great because of his character. His greatness is the cause of anything else that's great, according to the Word of God. And, and so in your notes, let's, let's get to the main point so we can get out of here. Number one, we need to realize that the greatness of Christ, number one and first and foremost, is because He is God. Christ is great. The mystery of godliness, God being manifest in the flesh, is great because Christ is God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the Bible 
And again, we had to go to Luke or Matthew because, you know, you can't preach a Christmas message without Luke or Matthew. Okay, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. Look at the first thing they say about Christ after his name. He shall be great. He shall be great. And shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He's going to be great. He's going to have a throne. He is going to be the Son of God. I don't think it gets any greater than that. He is the goat. And, and, and I mean the greatest of all time. Because, because he is the greatest. Psalm 95 and verse 3, look at this. The Bible says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And listen, 2,000 years ago, God showed up in the flesh on this planet, and we celebrate that and we rejoice in that. The Lord is a great God. But I want you to understand very soon, he will be showing up again. And when he shows up the second time, he'll show up as a great king above all gods. The first time he showed up as a great God, God in the flesh, God manifest in the flesh. When he shows up again, he will be a great king that will rule the world and the universe. And he will receive all the glory that he is due. The, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 that we're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And those are not two separate people, by the way. Those are not two separate people. They're the same person. The great God and our Savior is the same person. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter knew that Christ was God in the flesh. In 2 Peter 1, verse 1, he says uh, that, that uh, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, same thing Titus says. Christ is God, and he is our Savior. He's God, he's our Savior. Uh, the apostle John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, Peter realized God, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Titus realized it. Uh, the apostle John realized it. Even Thomas, doubting Thomas. We, we saw this a couple weeks ago. When Christ showed up, and, you know, he's the guy that said, if I don't put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe and then Christ showed up, and, and, and the words that came out of Thomas's mouth were, My Lord and my God. Christ himself equated himself and said that he's God. He said it in John chapter 5 and verse 18. Man, that's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him, because he made himself equal with God. In John chapter 10, they said, If you be the Christ, the anointed, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you plainly. And you still didn't believe <laughs> because you didn't believe the works and you don't believe my name and you don't believe my father's name. The greatness of God, the greatness of Christ is number one, the fact that he is God. We have to remember at Christmas, listen, it was God manifest in the flesh. Sometimes we miss that with that little baby in the manger because that, that's non-threatening, right? You better understand who that baby is. He is God in the flesh. And, and when we have a right perspective of the greatness of Christ, number two, 
we're going to understand that because of his greatness, because he is God in the flesh, it demands, he demands our praise. And we get that out of Psalm 48 and verse 1. This beard gets in my way sometimes. In this. Psalm 48 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Great is the Lord. And we've already said, hey, we've established that, right? Because he's great, he's greatly to be... Okay, now, now I may move from preaching to meddling at some point in this sermon, and this may be it. Because of the greatness of God, and because he is great, and because Christ is God, he is to greatly be praised. In the city of our God, and in the mountain of his holiness, and you see, we give men praise based on their greatness, right? When they do something great, man, we applaud them, we clap for them, we wear their jersey, we follow them on Twitter, we talk about them with our coworkers. We'll even show up on Sunday morning and talk about these great men that have done great, th- great things Saturday afternoon and Saturday night on the, on the TV screen. But in the city of our God and in the mountain of his holiness, there is no other God or man or object worthy of praise. And listen, when you read the Bible, there is continual praise to the one true God. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 says this, The four beasts, which each of them had six wings about, they were full of eyes within. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is to come. Night and day and night and day and night and day, Christ receives the praise that's due his name. As a matter of fact, when you read the Bible, the only time that that stops is when a sinner repents. The Bible says in Luke 15 and verse 10 that the angels of God express joy over one sinner that repents. But then after that happens, there's this continual praise in the presence of God. And listen, again, we ascribe greatness to men. We applaud their athletic achievements. We applaud their, their, their achievements in the, the workplace. We applaud good customer service and all these other things, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the greatness of Christ demands great praise. It demands great praise, and yet many times, listen, we might utter a song under our breath. We might stand in some kind of solemn silence whatever excuse we have to justify not giving our God what is due his name. You know, we won't praise God because we don't feel like it this Sunday. We haven't had our coffee yet. And that's probably the closest to the realest excuse you can have. I'm just not feeling it today, or these aren't my favorite songs, or this isn't the right style for me. I wish we had the old hymns. I wish we had the new songs. It doesn't matter because the greatness of Christ is what demands our praise. He is God, and we are not. And so listen, he's greatly to be praised, our measure of praise to God, or to measure to his greatness. When we understand who he is, well, it'll change what we offer to him. And, and, and listen, can I just tell you, we, we, I'm not talking about anybody else's church, I'm talking about our church. We need to understand when we corporately gather who we really are singing to. We, we need to understand the greatness of Christ because he is a great God. He's the only great God. And because of that, he's greatly to be praised. You say, well, I don't like it. I don't care what you like. I don't care what I like. 
It, it ain't about me. He is the one that's great. He is greatly to be praised. And, and listen, when you, really, when you really understand who he is, that ain't too much of a problem. But when you don't understand who he is according to the Bible, we'll have every excuse to not give him the praise that's to his name. I don't sing good. Said who? God didn't tell you that. God gave you a voice to praise him. God gave you hands to lift. He gave you hands to clap. He gave you feet to jump. And if you jump, we'll, we'll let you jump. You might not want to jump on the chair or probably tip over, but because he's a great God. He's a great God. It's his character that demands that. Number two, how are we doing? You okay? Number two, listen, the greatness of Christ not only demands praise, but number two, listen, we have to get back to the place where the greatness of Christ demands fear. You say, man, I thought this was a Christmas message. It is. It's about God manifest in the flesh. He is God. Psalm, 40, Psalm, Psalm 96 and verse 4 says this, For the Lord is great, and there's no period there, greatly to be praised, and there's no period there, he is to be feared above all gods. And, and can I just tell you, we live in a culture of Christianity in these last days where, where we've really lost the fear of the Lord. We've lost it. And the way I know that we've lost it is because of the way that we approach him. God says that he is a great God, he's greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared. If you study the early church, Acts chapter 5, for instance, and, and there's a few verses on the screen, uh, in the early church, uh, they were having church, they were bringing offerings, they were singing together and, and breaking bread together and all the different things, just like we are. The Bible says in verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and they kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But when, excuse me, but Peter said, Ananias... Why had Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? And again, I'm not preaching on tithing. Please, please listen to the text. The issue is not money. Peter says, look, why are you lying to the Holy Ghost and keeping back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thy own? After it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Now thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? Verse, two, verse 3 says that they lied to the Holy Ghost. Verse 5 says they lied, or excuse me, verse 4 said they lied to God. The Holy Ghost is God. When you lie to the Holy Ghost, you lie to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That means he died. A great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And, and I want to make a point. Look, again, if you, all you hear is, man, I knew the church wanted my money, you're you're an idiot. You're not listening. God takes his deity very seriously. The greatness of Christ, the greatness of God, the greatness of the Holy Spirit, it's all the same because they're God. And when we lie to God, we lie to the Holy Spirit, listen, it is cause of concern and God takes that very seriously. The issue is not what they brought. They could have kept the land. They could have sold the land and gave half the money. The issue is they connived and conceived a thing in their hearts. And they were just liars. And God dealt with them. 
because he's greatly to be feared. You know, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, this is not a very popular verse that people preach on when they talk about the church, but it's in the Bible. Acts 9 and verse 31, the Bible says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And, and, and if you understand the context, it's because in Acts chapter 9, Saul was converted on the Damascus road. The persecutor of the church had, had now become a preacher of Jesus Christ. And so the persecution that Paul put on the church was now relieved because he had been converted and now is a follower of Christ, but it says that the churches had rest and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. And listen, I'm thankful that in Christ we have rest, aren't you? I'm thankful. Listen, in Christ we have rest We have rest because our persecutors have been defeated. The great persecutor of the early church, Paul, had been called to preach. But listen, rest in Christ is not a replacement for for the fear of the Lord. We've got a lot of people that are interested in their rest in Christ, and that's a biblical doctrine. But while you're resting in Christ, you you had better be walking in the fear of the Lord. You'd better be walking in the fear of the Lord. And and too many Christians like resting in Christ, and no one is walking in the fear of the Lord. And and, and because of that, the gospel is not getting to the world. We've lost the fear of the Lord in our church. I'm not talking about everybody else's church. I'm talking about our church. We've lost it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7, it talks about the Proverbs of Solomon, right? The son of David, king of Israel. The, the, this is one of the wisdom books of your Old Testament. It says to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom and justice and judgment and equality or equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsel, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. And the point is, God has wisdom. And, and understanding for you to receive. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know the words of his understanding. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you understand that the fear of the Lord is what allows you to understand God's word? It is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the truth is, many professing Christians have never taken the first step to knowledge. They know that Christ is their Lord and Savior, but they've lost or never had the fear of the Lord. Listen, when you understand the greatness of who Christ is, He is God. And listen, because He is God, He demands, it demands for us to fear Him. It demands it. You say, I don't agree with that. Well, okay. Well, the Bible disagrees with you. You know, when Isaiah stood before the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, when, when, when he saw the Lord seated high and lifted up, and, and he saw his throne, and he saw all these, these cherubim worshiping God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. And listen, the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. In Isaiah chapter 6, when, when Isaiah, the prophet of God, the man of God, when he saw that... Well, he just ran right up there and gave him a hug and high five. And man, isn't it awesome, Jesus, to, to see you and be with you? He says, woe is me, 
for I am undone, like my body is coming apart because I'm in the very presence of God. I am a man of unclean lips. He recognized his sin. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when we lose the fear of God, we've lost a biblical perspective of God. In Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle, John who had spent three and a half years with Jesus Christ, John who was the beloved Apostle, when he saw Christ in his glory, the Bible says that he fell at his feet as dead. And then he laid his right hand on me, Christ did, and he said to me, fear not. You see, John had a right perspective. He had a right fear of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, that, that there's a lot of things that we could fear in this life, but you don't really need to fear a lot, a lot of those things. There's just one person that you need to fear. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Fear not that them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And there's only one that can do that, and he is the Lord. And so listen, anything else that can kill your body, up to and including COVID, we've got more people scared of COVID and more fearful people toward COVID than we do fearful toward Christ. And that's jacked up. And, and you can disagree. We have, we have lost the fear of the Lord. There is only one who can execute judgment and because of sin, send a soul to hell. And that is the Lord. And he is God. It is Jesus Christ and God doesn't want that for you, the reason that God came in the flesh, so that he could die on that cross and pay for your sin and my sin through his blood sacrifice. It was his precious blood, the, the blood of God, according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, that was shed on that cross for you so that you and I could be forgiven. But, but sin has to be dealt with, and only God could deal with it. And if you don't receive what Christ has done, well, well God will let you pay for your own sin. And, and, and the point is, we need to have a right fear of the Lord, man. You, say, you see, the sad reality is that some of us, possibly even in this room or, or listening online, we've, we've so lost the fear of the Lord that, number one, we continue to reject the gospel after we've heard it over and over and over again. And number two, if we have received it, we continue to toy in our sin in open rebellion against God. Let me tell you why we do that. Because we've forgotten that he's God. We've forgotten that he's God. The very person of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Christ, well, it demands us to fear the Lord. And then number three, the greatness of Christ, it demands all. And, and here's the last point. The, the greatness of Christ demands all. Look at Psalm 145 and verse 3, and then we're done. Look, the Bible says, great is the Lord. And we would all say, Amen. And he's greatly to be praised. And do you see how those things kind of keep showing up together? Because he's great, he's greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. And, and if you were to go back and read the context of that whole passage, those six verses, let me just read it. Verse 1 says, I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever, ever and ever. Every day I will bless thee and praise thy name forever and ever. 
Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of thy glorious honor and of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of, of the might and of thy terrible acts. And I will declare thy greatness. The point is the psalmist is just overwhelmed with God's greatness. He says it's unsearchable. We could talk about it forever and ever and ever and still not explain everything that's great about you. His greatness is just unsearchable. And listen, whatever level of awe that you have for God this morning, can I just tell you it's not enough? It's not enough. And the reason why is because his greatness is unsearchable. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't search to know God more, you, you don't need to live in a, def- well, if, if I can't really understand God, then I'll just quit trying to understand God. Well, that's not the point. As a matter of fact, the more you understand about God, the more you want to know about God. And you just need to understand that because he's God, you'll never fully understand all of his greatness. You'll never know it all. You'll never know it all. But man, listen, his all is unsearchable. Romans 11, verse 33, it says, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Listen, the more you learn about Christ, the more you're in awe of him, and the more you're in awe of him, the more you want to know about him. Listen, when God, when, if you just look back over your shoulder how God has been faithful and how God intervened when you couldn't understand it, when you didn't see it coming, when you needed a miracle and didn't know how it was going to happen and God did it, and you say, man, how did God even know? How did God even do it that way? Well, he's not done yet <laughs> because his greatness is unsearchable. And because you know him, you want to know him more. Some of us have lost the awe. We've lost the awe of the greatness of Christ. We've reduced it down to an hour and 15 minutes of observation on Sunday morning. We don't even have an awe of him anymore. We don't have an awe of his word. We don't have an awe of his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and his mercy and his provision and his character and his nature and his attributes and his majesty and his splendor or his authority or his power or his goodness and his judgment and his eternal purpose and his glory. We're not in awe of any of that. But if a ball team puts up 50 points on Saturday, we think that's the greatest thing that's ever happened. We've also replaced the awe of our God to measurable standards, such as Sunday morning attendance records, tithing records, church membership classes, and discipleship lessons completed. And, and if you went through MTT and got all your blanks in, then you, you, you must have some kind of awe of God. Listen, the greatness of Christ demands awe. His greatness is unsearchable. His riches are unsearchable. His wisdom and his knowledge are unsearchable. But the more all that you are in of him, the more you'll want to know him. The more you'll search him out. The, the more you'll spend time in his word. Ephesians chapter 3, I skipped this earlier, but verse 8 says this. Paul writes and he says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. I mean, Paul, Paul didn't even number himself with the twelve apostles. He also says, I'm the worst Christian I know. I'm, the le- I'm less than the least of all saints. And, and he knew a few of them, and he said, well, I, I'm nothing. <laughs> I, I've been given grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
You know, my, my goal this morning, and I believe what God's goal for us is, we need to be reminded of the greatness of Christ. If we lose that, we still have service. We still do religious things. We'll still open a Bible. We'll still do discipleship. But man, listen, when we lose the greatness of Christ, we really we won't have the right perspective for any of that. And I, and I think God, in this season, in 2020, in this time of year, would have us to be reminded of just how great Christ really is. Who do you give praise to? Do you give praise to men? And you should. Listen, if people accomplish things, man, rejoice, applaud, fine, no problem. You score 50 points, fine, whatever. You give good customer service, you make a good cup of coffee, I mean, that's fine. The problem is if we praise them more than we praise God, we've got the wrong perspective. Who do I fear? Or what do I fear? Because the truth is, man, some of us fear our employers. Maybe we fear our spouse. Maybe we fear other relationships we have. We fear the government. We fear a virus. And we don't ascribe nearly the same level of fear to the one true God. Are you kidding me? Listen, there's nothing in this There's plenty of things in this world that can take our life. Let's not be idiots. But there's only one person that can judge between heaven and hell. And that's the one true God. And we need to have a right fear of him. And then lastly, what are you, what are you in awe of? Have you lost the awe of Christ in your life? Man, have you so come to the place where you're comfortable with your level of understanding of who Christ is, his glory, his wisdom, his word, his power, his provision? Listen, if any of us have gotten to the place where we've stopped being in awe, well, we need to repent because he's unsearchable. And, and, and we don't need to be comfortable <laughs> where we are. We need to always be in awe of, of his greatness because he is God. And, and again, listen, I know, I know it's Christmas and I know this is our first week, and, but, but I think God would, would, would just remind us, great is the mystery of godliness. It was God that was manifest in the flesh. It was God that was manifest in the flesh. Let's be reminded of that. Amen.